Welcome to the Do Good to Lead Well podcast. If you're passionate about mastering self-leadership, then you're in the right place. I have always been curious about and fascinated by the pursuit of leadership excellence. This is why I pursued my PhD in psychology with a specialization in business, and I've continued to dedicate my career to understanding the science and practice of positive leadership. My name is Craig Dowden, I'm a best-selling author, award-winning keynote speaker, executive coach, and member of the Forbes Coaches Council. Each week, I'll bring you world-class content on the science and practice of positive leadership. Through my conversations with best-selling authors, TED speakers, and top CEOs, you'll be able to leverage their insights and experience so you can maximize your potential and be the leader the world needs you to be. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Do Good to Lead Well Through Crisis VIP webinar series. My name is Craig Dowden, and I feel incredibly fortunate to host this ongoing series uh, that over the past year have interviewed well over 60 CEOs, best-selling authors, and TED speakers around how we can do good to lead well, how we can learn and grow and have a positive difference in our environment, and I'm thrilled uh, to welcome Jim to the program today uh, and can't wait to, to set this up because I know there was a lot of interest, a lot of great comments, and it's such a timely topic. For those of you uh, who have been here before and have continued to follow uh, me along in this journey, welcome back. Great to have you and really appreciate that you're going to take part in a fantastic Lunch and Learn. Uh, for those of you, this is the first time here. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to spend with me and Jim this afternoon. Uh, to give you some background, essentially this series was launched before the publication of my book, Do Good to Lead Well, The Science and Practice of Positive Leadership. And the reason I wanted to launch this series was I have the incredible good fortune, I feel extraordinarily grateful that I have the opportunity to interact with top CEOs, best-selling authors, TED speakers like Jim on a regular basis. And my goal was let's get a, a community-based conversation going so we can learn from each other and, and have an open dialogue. And once COVID-19 came upon us last year, and as we were trying to figure out, how, and we continue to figure out, so how do we uh, exist in this environment? What can we learn? How can we grow? I was really looking forward to again, providing this community-based forum. And I am thrilled that Jim Deterte is here and he's taken time out of his uh, extraordinarily busy schedule to share his insights. He's an author, Darden professor uh, of business administration in the leadership and organizational behavior area at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. Uh, he's also a professor of public policy he received an MA and PhD from Harvard University. He has an MBA from the University of Minnesota. He writes for uh, top tier publications, including Harvard Business. The book that we're gonna be speaking out about this afternoon, Choosing Courage, The Everyday Guide to Being Brave at Work, was published by Harvard Business Press, and it comes out May 18th. I highly recommend, I had the good fortune of being able to read through it. I would love to give you, <laughs> show you, my, my copy is on order and I'm excited to receive the hard copy version. It's an extraordinarily insightful read. Uh, I love the evidence base upon which it's built. And there are so many fantastic, actionable insights, strategies, reflection questions. And in today's, in where we are today, in terms of uh, within our, our professional lives, our personal lives, having courageous conversations is really an invaluable skill. And one in which in my own coaching practice, I, I talk to executives about all the time, which is why I've been recommending his book uh, everywhere. One final thing I wanna share before we open the conversation and start the conversation and welcome Jim to the program, he has kindly agreed to take your questions. So please jump in, use the chat function to send me questions for Jim. This is a wonderful opportunity to interact with 
one of the world's top experts in terms of how we can engage in courageous conversations. So Jim, thank you so, so much for taking the time. It's an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on the program this afternoon. Craig, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. And as you said, I'm I'm delighted to try to have a conversation with everybody here. Let's make this as much of a collective learning uh, experience as we can. Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the things, what inspired you to to write this book? Can you give us a little bit of the the build up to what was uh, what inspired you to put put pen to paper, if you will, and get get this into the into our libraries? Sure. So for probably, you know, uh, almost all of the last 20 years that I've been teaching various forms of leadership courses, uh, I would finish every course uh, or, you know, engagement of any length with a, a short summary in which I would say, look, we've covered this many sort of tools and techniques and theories and findings about leadership. Uh, and you've added a lot of, uh, you know, arrows to your quiver. But I ultimately think that the test of leadership, of good leadership, is not going to be, you know, whether we put more you know, arrows in that quiver if we had more time. It's going to be whether you use those arrows, you know, you use the right tools from your toolkit when those defining moments came. And I would say, you know, to me, that ultimately was their was a test of courageous leadership. And then I would end with just a couple minutes in which I try to give you know some inspirational remarks about about courage. And Repeatedly, what started to happen is on feedback forms, people would say, that's what we need. That's the course we need. That's the help we need. Um, we know it's true, but we just don't really know how to do it, and we remain afraid. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I heard that for a number of years. And, and then uh, after hearing that for a few years, I also uh, found a note that I had written 10 years ago. This was in 2011. I found a note that I had written back in 2001 while I was doing my dissertation. And my dissertation was on speaking up. It was on speaking truth mm. to power. Right. And, uh, you know, the general finding then, and it remains true, is in general, when people feel it's safe to speak up, they do so at work. And when they don't feel it's safe, they don't. But there was, at the time in my dissertation, there was a small segment of people who clearly were saying, about themselves or someone else, even though it's not safe, um, this person speaks up or takes action. And I had written a note to myself back in 2001 that said, write about workplace courage. And then I had done, and then, you know, academic life took over and I had done nothing with that. And right around the time I was starting to feel inspired by the students continuously saying, we need this, I found that note. And, and those two things together led me to say, uh, it's clear that people want and need this, and there is not a great, there's not a great book or a great set of advice about how to do this, but do it in a way that's relatively safe and effective. And so I spent you know, basically the last 10 years then doing a lot of additional research and reading to produce this book. Well, and that's one of the things that I love and I'm passionate about. I love that it's heavily evidence-based and you reference your own work, your own incredible work, you draw on the work of others and really make a compelling case as to, well, these are practices and they're evidence-informed practices and how we benefit. One of the things that, uh, so, as I said, so many wonderful insights and points that you make, one thing that I love right out of the gate is that, and, and it challenges the reader and uh, around our own idea of what courageous behavior looks like. And I love how you frame it that we have this assumption or belief that it's almost like a privileged few who engage in that. Can you share that with, with this audience? Because I think it's such a compelling point and really frames, it, it prompted lots of reflection on my side, so. Yeah, I think um, what, one, of the, one of the myths, if you will, uh, and it's a myth that serves a, a purpose for, for many of us. One of the myths about courage is that it's some kind of innate skill or it's some inborn potential of just a few, of just some special, you know, privileged group. And, you know, not only does that turn out to be wrong, um, I think it's, it's a convenient myth because um, as long as we can sort of believe there's some birthright folks 
and it's few, uh, then we can all, all the rest of us can excuse ourselves and say, I don't have to take risks. I don't have to stick my neck out or I don't have to do the hard work. Mm -hmm. And so I think in my research, I have found there is no such thing. There's no meaningful variable um, as a trait that is valor or any other kind. There's no such thing as a courage gene. Uh, no biologist has identified that. I think we we have to just be willing to let that go. And I think, um, you know, Parker Palmer has a quote about Rosa Parks and he says, uh, you know, something to the effect that and Rosa Parks is this amazing person, but as long as we put her up on this pedestal, uh, we don't have to ask ourselves, why am I not the one making this? Mm -hmm. I think, um, I don't believe at all that there's any evidence that courage is a trait. Uh, and in fact, my research would suggest the difference between people who um, who act courageously sometimes and those who don't is is a choice based on sort of a decision to to feel and accept responsibility. And then the difference between competent or incompetent action is very much like any skill, uh, you know, sports, music, whatever. It is a practiced behavior that you get better. Uh, and I think we have to be willing, you know, that's painful because we would like to sit it out, uh, yep. but there's no basis. I cannot give you a basis in the literature for sitting it out. Well, and that's what I love about it because to your point, because then that can be used to rationalize our own unwillingness to act courageously. And I love how you frame the book throughout around, okay, we can have our reactions and as you share through, it's kind of like, and then afterwards we have a choice about how things are going to progress. And we play a pivotal role around that. And what I love about your book is that you then provide a roadmap. So if this is something you choose to want to undertake, these are the steps that you can take informed by research and, and, and much of my, your research around how to be able to do that. So right away, we have a question, and I'm not so, so this is, uh, uh, David said, Jim, I'm really looking forward to read this book. Can you give some ideas when you talk about courageous behavior, what are some of the common examples, like how do you define courage? Sure. It's a great question. It'll set the stage for really the rest of the conversation, I think. So, you know, another, I think, myth or, or sort of common belief that we have to sort of move past is that courage is only the sort of big, illegal, immoral kinds of things that become whistleblowing scandals, you know, that end up disastrously for the organization and for the whistleblower. Uh, in fact, in, in my research, uh, Evan Bruno, PhD student of mine, and I uh, identified 35 different kinds of common workplace behaviors that are labeled courageous quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, we break them down into for let's say larger buckets. So the most common types of behaviors uh, are speaking truth to power behaviors. So right. challenging your boss about strategies, processes, uh, directions, um, challenging or speaking up or pushing back against inappropriate behavior by a boss, uh, potentially illegal behavior by a boss. Uh, doing other things that sort of risk the, uh, the ire or wrath of the boss, like, uh, you know, standing up for your own people to the boss, um, at going mm -hmm. to bat defending. So a variety of sort of truth to power behaviors. The second uh, bucket is conversations, challenges, confrontations with peers and subordinates. So telling the truth to peers about, you know, not, not carrying their share of the workload, not being respectful, not doing what they said they would do. Uh, even with subordinates, you know, whether it's formal or informal feedback. Uh, making tough decisions about promotions, in some cases, making tough decisions about letting people go. Uh, and what's interesting about um, that category in particular is you might say, well, how is that courageous? Isn't that just the definition of your job if you're a manager? Right. And I would say, yeah, technically it is. But it turns out that many of these 35 behaviors are either technically part of people's in-role job description and still not done very frequently, uh, or, um, you know, espoused desired behaviors that in fact, we don't really actually reward. So, mm -hmm. and for example, another category, which tends to reflect that is there's almost no organization today that doesn't say it wants its people to be learning and stretching themselves. And there's almost no organization that says they don't want their people to be creative and innovative and out of the box thinkers. And yet, 
clearly the receptivity to that is not all that high or these behaviors wouldn't be called courageous in so many work environments. So really we're talking about all sorts of behaviors that you know, challenge the status quo and or people um, in the sort of status quo environment. And another way to think about what behaviors might be courageous in a given workplace is to just think about four kinds of risks. Because courageous behavior is ultimately a worthy action to taken despite some perceived risk. Right. We're just talking about worthy acts despite risk. And it turns out that the four common kinds of risks we encounter in workplaces, the one everybody thinks of right away is economic or career, right? I don't want to get labeled, held back, fired, blackballed, right? So economic career risk, everybody thinks of that one. But there are three other potent ones. Social risks loom large for people. Um, you know, I can challenge my peers, I could speak against the status quo, but I risk being sort of isolated or ostracized. And, you know, as a species, we evolved for most of our time on earth. If um, we got sort of kicked out of the clan or the tribe, we were gonna die, right? You couldn't live, you couldn't survive alone. So it's a very logical human fear to fear social consequences at work. Then there are psychological consequences. Um, you know, not surprisingly, people don't wanna feel stupid, be embarrassed, uh, look dumb in front of, you know, others. So there's psychological risk. And then in far more environments than we think of, especially for frontline workers, there are still some physical risks people face in some work environments, mm -hmm. not just firefighters and police officers. Um, so people fear, you know, economic career, social, psychological, uh, and sometimes physical risks. And because of that, many, many kinds of workplace behaviors are seen as requiring courage. Mm. Well, it's such a great, as you say, sets the stage wonderfully. And so now have another follow-up question from Allison and really appreciate you talk about uh, the speaking to power. So in your experience and in your research, what are some of the key ways to be able to do that most effectively? Is there something that we can do to 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 uh, be more effective when we do that? Sure. Uh, I will say, I'll say three things. There are many, many, but I'll give kind of three high level examples um, or, or strategies. So one is, I think, uh, is really paying attention to and keeping uh, foremost in your mind uh, that when you're sort of speaking truth to power, or for that matter, to anybody that you're trying to persuade or sort of get to come to or accept your, your conclusion or position, uh, if you already had all the resources, power, ability to make it happen, you're not speaking up in the first place, right? The whole reason you're speaking up is because you need that person. To agree mm. with you in your way. And so one big mistake we inadvertently make is we we tell our story, we make our pitch from our own perspective. And that's actually the least relevant perspective in the conversation. Right. So Craig, if you hold something that I really want or need from you, telling you all the reasons that persuade me are irrelevant if they don't persuade you. Uh, and simple examples of, well, what do I mean by framing, for example? Well, maybe um, I'm really persuaded by um, opportunities. I'm passionate about, let's pursue this because it's a great opportunity. But for whatever reason, you're not an opportunity frame guy, you're a threat frame guy. Right. You got a lot going on, you're worried about taking risks. So if I tell you it's a great opportunity, that's like, great, fine, forget it. If I were to tell you about the same thing and say, I fear if we don't do this, there's right. a major threat to our well-being as an organization. Now your ears perk up and you say, let's talk more. Uh, similarly, you know, for some of us, it's very much about sort of the economic or instrumental reason. You know, you go to your boss and unless you can say this is the impact I perceive it's having on some measurable you know, sales goal or financial outcome, they don't want to hear it. Um, and so if you go in there guns a-blazing with your sort of culture argument or values argument, it's not going to go very well. Mm -hmm. uh, other people are the opposite. If you go in there guns a-blazing about why, uh, for example, 
uh, and I would I think this is true for me. If you come in guns a blazing to me about why we should be in, we should do more to be inclusive or anti-racist as an organization, and you start telling me about why it's going to be good for our business, that's actually going to make me upset. Um, mm -hmm. I think the reason we should be an anti-racist organization is because it's the human correct thing to do. It's the right value. And so framing is so critical. Uh, the second thing that matters just tremendously is emotion management. If we don't, turns out if we don't tend to manage our own emotions well, we're going to have a hard time managing the other person's emotions well. Uh, if I'm angry, for example, I'm more likely to say things to my boss in a way that just puts him or her on the defensive. So there's a huge set of sort of emotion management strategies that are really important. And then the third thing I would say, which isn't always doable depending on your circumstances, is um, do the work ahead of time to set the stage for the specific instances to go well. So you can have all the evidence on your side, you can frame correctly, you can control emotions well on an issue. But if leading up to that issue, your boss has already concluded you're not emotionally stable, you're not trustworthy, and you're not very competent, then why are they going to be compelled by what you say in the moment, no matter how skillfully you say it? So it turns out, you know, psychologists talk about idiosyncrasy credits. Right. The essence of that is, right, that you, you can sort of stack up chips to cash in mm -hmm. when you want to non-conform by showing sufficient conformity, which really means warmth and competence ahead of time. Right. So I think there's the, what we do in the moment that matters a lot. And frankly, it matters how we're seen leading up to those moments. Well, and one of the things I love about that and fantastic though, each of those strategies, so valuable. And I love the, the example you give about opportunity versus threat. And the point that you make around, well, you know, I can believe it's right and 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 we can get so wrapped up in that hey it's an op and then not thinking about now how's that other person going to hear it and yeah. one of the points i love that you make in the book is around so if you and i have a perspective on an issue uh, or disagreement i have a perspective versus the perspective can you i just thought that was a, an ingenious and it really ties in nicely to that point yeah so you know um, what you're referring to there is what folks like Chris Argyris, um have talked about as a partial view rather than the view. Uh, right. So, you know, when we say, and this is usually quite inadvertent on our part, when we say like things like, well, the solution here, right? <laughs> the solution implies that there is one and only one viable path forward, right? Yeah. Uh, well, it turns out that A, of course, that's usually not true. Uh, usually it's one of multiple possible solutions, uh, mm -hmm. but it does damage even, you know, despite that not being like, it, despite it not being true, the more damaging thing is that uh, when you say, well, the path forward or the solution, uh, what you're unintentionally doing is you're triggering in the listener. If I don't see it that way also, you're insulting me, you're calling me stupid, you're challenging my authority. And so literally just changing from the to a can be quite a powerful, uh, and, and I talk, you know, as you know, Craig, I talk also about related types of phrases and uh, that end up making quite a difference. Uh, saying things, you know, working to avoid, for example, using words like obviously, or clearly, um, or, um, you know, saying since we all agree, you know, when you say like, well, since it's so obviously the case that dot, 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 right? What also right. follows sort of the unspoken is, and if you don't see it that way, you're a dummy, yeah. right? And so psychologists call that naive realism. Uh, right. Naive realism is right is this basic belief that there's like one invariant unknowable reality, and uh, the corollary to that is that uh, I'm the one who knows that one invariant truth, right. and so if you don't see it that way, it's because you're stupid, self-interested, whatever. Um, and not surprisingly, if we talk to people from that perspective, it doesn't go so well. 
For sure. And one of the things I love, and again, why I, I highly recommend pe people to, to get the book and to read, read, you share so many amazing examples of language and language choice, as you shared, you know, a versus the obviously or clearly all those kinds of setups and and you hear them all the time and yeah. then haven't thought about the consequences on the listener to your point around well they may or may not share that and then how are they going to react if with that type of setup and are you actually going to be able to move this conversation forward so i think it is such a, a really compelling series of questions we want to ask ourselves around okay how am i how am I going to frame this? How am I describing it? And then how's this listener going to hear it from me? So I think that's just so valuable. Yeah. And you know, like I look, the book probably has a hundred <laughs> tips, techniques, strategies, tools, no listener, no reader is going to possibly remember a hundred, no reader is going to remember and probably enact 10. The truth is from my perspective, if you remembered and enacted three, you might change your life quite a bit. And I'll just give you an example for me. So, you know, we're talking, uh, Craig, as you know, there's a, a table in the book that has a whole set of like phrases to avoid. Uh, yes. So one that for me has been really powerful is um, trying to learn to avoid frequency words. And in particular, the words mm -hmm. always and never. Uh, right. right. You know, like I learned that the very painful way. It only took maybe 20 years. Uh, you know, my wife would say something at home like, uh, Jim, you never help out in the kitchen. And, um, and you know, what she was clearly really saying was, I'm hurt and or angry that you're not helping enough. And that was a completely valid thing for her to say. Uh, but because she used the word never, it would cause these like derailing conversations, you know, where like I would pull out my little mental notebook and say, well, I'm pretty sure last Thursday, I remember putting my cereal bowl in the dishwasher. So I don't feel it's fair to say never. And then, you know, we had a big argument about this. And so for me, um, my wife, like learning to try, like we have agreed and now we laugh about it. We literally say, um, oh, you use the A word again, or oh, you use the N word again. And now it's a funny right. thing in our house right. because we learned that um, when we used always or never, all we got into was an argument about frequency and it just derailed us from the underlying point which had validity to it. Yep. Well, and I love, I was about to mention that table because that alone, I think chapter 10, it is just, it's filled with and to your point and that's one of the things that i really appreciate about how you approach it one subtle shift you know changing from avoiding never always words or shifting from uh you know the the solution to us may seem so small yet the impact on other people and ourselves in terms of how and it's one of the key messages i love that you share throughout the book which is being more mindful of how we're approaching things and taking ownership. And, and it's a message I think is so powerful. Choices. We have choices. We have most control, however, how we say things, how we act and how we feel. So let's maximize ownership there. One of the, as you said, there's so many tips. One of the ideas that really resonated uh, was around the courage ladder can you talk about what that is how it works because i think it just is i've already shared that concept with several people because i think it is really eye-opening and, and and impactful sure so yeah it's in the book it's also if you go to my website jimdeter.com you can you can find the courage ladder and instructions to use it. it's it's you know frankly it's a simple concept and it's based on some pretty bedrock psychology that uh we all have our own we all have our own set of things that range from you know mildly frightening for us to do at work to you know quite terrifying uh and you know i think i i, I think i share in the book that 
I think that M. Scott Peck got it right. You know, people often would say to me and clearly had said to him, well, I'm afraid, so I, I want to be courageous, but I'm afraid, so I can't. And mm -hmm. the correct answer to that is actually, uh, oh, you're afraid, that's great. That means the stage is set, right? right. You know, and Scott Peck is the one who said, um, you know, many people think courage is the absence of fear. No, the absence of fear is some kind of brain damage. Um, courage is the capacity to go ahead in spite of the pain, right? So any reasonable person who understands physical, psychological, social, and economic risks has fears. That's, that's a reasonable place to be. Uh, the idea of the courage ladder is to say, place some actions you'd like to do. Like, I'd like to say no to requests for my time more often. Uh, I'd like to... Um, I'd like to be honest with my peer that I don't appreciate it when he or she says this. I'd like to tell my boss that I don't feel the opportunities I was promised if I did X, Y, Z have been forthcoming, right? So everybody can build a ladder from sort of the lowest sort of stress, you know, fear level up to quite. And the idea of the courage ladder is to say, um, if you were to just ask people, if I were instead to just say, um, hey, Craig, I want you to commit to a courageous act. Because of all the myths about courage, you know, the whistleblower kind of stuff, most likely the single thing you would think of would be quite high on your ladder. Right. The type that comes to your mind is something really scary. And what I wanted to help people do is say, uh, look, just like if you were going to train for a, a 5K or a 10K or a marathon, you don't try to run 26.2 miles the first day, right? That would be A, a route to never getting started, and B, it would be a route to having such failure and pain that you would never run again, right? <laughs> the way you train for anything is you start slow. Mm. You build some skills, but you also build some confidence, like I can do this, and I'm, and I'm motivated to do more. And so what I wanted people to do is to think for themselves, what was the what was a set of actions and then start lower where they could try out some new skills and behaviors in a relatively safer lower stakes context mm -hmm. and that by practicing they could sort of move up the ladder and what i said is based on sort of bedrock um psychology that's not just based on like psychology of deliberate practice or what we know about training it's also based on classic exposure therapy mm, right? Uh, right or any phobia or fear so if you have a, a deathly fear of snakes and you wanted to extinguish the fear um, it does not involve you walking straight into a room putting your hand in the bowl constrictor cage and picking it up right that's crazy the right. only thing you might do the first time is literally open the door and stand in the doorway for five seconds try not to have a panic attack right? While the thing's in a cage 25 feet away from you. And then you would mm. slow, exposure therapies, right? You would very slowly move toward that goal. Mm. And so the idea of the ladder is simple. A, it personalizes it for yourself. And B, it says, find ways to start at manageable levels. Mm. That's so great. And well, I've got a, a question here from, from Lauren who asks, so how do I know like it, that I have a good courage ladder, like in terms of what I've got on it? Are there things that should be on it or not on it? Um, yeah, so there's no possible way anybody else can tell you whether you have the wrong things or right things on it because mm -hmm. it's deeply personal, right? right. Uh, by which I mean several things. First of all, uh, I, nobody else can really know um, nobody else can really know how frightening any given set of acts are for other people. Uh, like like a, a really simple example of that could be, it's possible you could be like a manager in a sales function and have a terrible fear of flying. And you, you are actually being hugely courageous just forcing yourself to get on a plane to go do certain must-do events. But nobody on your team is generally looking at you thinking you're courageous for flying, right? So 
first of all, nobody can really know like what is subjectively fearful for you, frightening for you. Mm. Uh, second, nobody can, nobody has your own internalized value system, right? Like I can know which things offend me and or which things I'm most passionate about, but I can't tell anybody else what those should be, right? Mm. So nobody can really tell you what's the right or wrong stuff to have on the ladder. Now, as let's say a social psychologist, the thing I would advise is think about things in like uh, Joseph Strayhorn is a psychiatrist who's who's talked about um, SUDs, subjective units of distress. So this is just an imaginary scale, right? Where you say like one is, you know, basically no distress at all or very minimal. And 10 is like, you know, a panic attack, like worst fear I can imagine. Uh, and what he says is when you're thinking of things you'd like to do, um, assign each of them a SUDS score, a subjective unit stress score. So for me, the application of that is, and again, I don't think this is a wrong ladder, but it might be a potentially less useful ladder. If you say like the low, thing I put on the lowest rung is a zero or a one, like it's not hard at all. And then the second rung is already a nine, and you get a nine, nine, and a 10. Um, right. That might not be the best ladder because you're going to have a hard time sort of doing gradated practice. Right. So that's not about saying what items should be on there for any given person, but I think it tends to be helpful to have something that you would, you know, code as a two or a three, a four or a five, because it allows you to sort of move up the rungs in a reasonable way. Well, and what I love about that point, I'm so glad someone asked that question because when it, because it's such a personal journey as you talk about, and then we can get distracted or kind of like, okay, where do, where do I fit and what's, and I love, as you were saying, hey, let's break it down to look at kind of low, medium, high, medium, high, and then we progress along that. And it's a, it's our journey. It's unique to us. It's based on our values, our experiences. And so it empowers us to be able to identify without judgment. Uh, those pieces and then and learn ourselves how to and I love that point as well about hey you're not going to go out and jog 26 miles <laughs> run that it's just going to be and so it sets us up uh, for success another great question um, from PB who asked like so what do you do when you have you're in a relationship personal professional with someone who it's very challenging to deal with from an emotional standpoint do you have any insight into how to manage our own emotions so that we can have those courageous conversations, stay grounded in an environment where we have to interact with someone that isn't as open? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, right? Be, um, let, let me start by, um, you know, sharing what for me is kind of like, because the strategies all sort of derive from this. Um, for me, what I call sort of like, Jim's emotions in a nutshell explanation. So uh, we have an evolved system, right? That you can call like defense circuitry that fires automatically. So for example, if you're in a meeting and you know somebody says something offensive, nasty, whatever, um, immediately before there's any conscious thought, you feel that flat, let's say of anger, right? That's defense circuitry. That 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 evolved actually to help us run away from the snake before we even say it's a snake, right? So that part's automatic. You can't do anything about that. Like stimulus to initial reaction, you're stuck with that. Um, I've never met a, hum a normal human being who doesn't have that reality because uh, you probably wouldn't stay alive if you didn't have right. that. <laughs> right. So everybody has that reaction. Um, it's what comes next that we can exert some control over. So when you have that initial flash, uh, you know, your face gets red, you start to, you know, you, you feel tingly, whatever it is you feel, you know, when you have flash of anger or fear, uh, then a millisecond or so later, you have the first thought. Like, and it might be in the case of, let's say a boss saying something, you know, it might be like, you know, oh, same shit again, right? Whatever that like immediate flash is. Um, that's very hard to stop. Right. But mm. what you can do is address what happens next because the next part's all in your control. So 
your body automatically gets you fired up. Um, but what you can learn is I'm responsible for what I do from that point onward with the fire. And unfortunately, what we all, most of us have learned to do is fuel the fire, right? So like the boss says something or makes a look, like looks disinterested. And we add logs to the fire by starting to tell ourselves immediately in our dialogue. He always says that stuff. Um, he never likes my ideas. She's such a dot, dot, dot. Um, and as long as you do that, you're fueling the fire. Now you've gone from like facial expression suggests she doesn't like this idea to she's a whatever, right? And now you're really mad. Mm. Um, what the key to this is learning that like what, it's very hard to stop the initial reaction, but you can learn to defuse the fire, take oxygen away from the fire. Mm. You could just you could choose instead to learn to say, uh, "This isn't about me," or, you know, "I think she's a very sad person," or "I think he's having a bad day again," or mm. uh, "I think he has a priority set that's different than mine." And I mean, I will admit that for me, every every part of my instinct is to throw logs on the fire. Right. Um, it is a very very effortful skill to learn. Right. Mm. And if you say like, okay, let's say it's hard to disagree with that. I think if you say, but what are the concrete strategies? Well, I think the most useful tend to be in the realm um, of inquiry, mm. uh, which is like sort of deep, real perspective taking and understanding. So when we start to feel angry at like a difficult colleague, uh, we tend to project a whole bunch of, I know why you're behaving that way. I know what you're feeling. And then again, that kind of fuels. Uh, what can often sort of calm the sort of not so nice or not so open person down is for them to truly feel heard. Mm. So you know, re like if you can slow yourself down emotionally enough to say, um, I hear you saying you don't like my idea. Can you help me understand why? Or you seem right. to be upset. Is that fair? And if so, could you help me understand, did I do something? Um, the one thing, and I mean, if you don't believe this, I just would urge you to try it. Uh, I will often have people I work with role play. And, uh, they, and I will say, like, go at it as nasty. Just be as angry as you want at me over and over and over. And then I will engage in deep, deep empathy. I understand why you feel, yes. I sometimes have exactly the same experience. When I have felt that way, I felt both. When I have felt that way, it took me days to get. And after like the third round, the person just can't sustain the anger. Like it's almost impossible to be continue being a jerk when somebody has been deeply empathic two or three times. <laughs> right. Right. Um, one of the things I think I might say it in the book is. Um, Oftentimes when you have people say like, we're at this intractable place, we cannot solve, we cannot get to a solution. I'll ask them, um, if you both agreed to work on this, how long would it actually take you to solve the problem? Mm. And, and they will say something like, oh, 30 seconds, oh, maybe 60, maybe 60 seconds. You say, oh, so the solution's that easy. Uh-huh. Why can't you get there? Because I hate it, because I won't listen to it, because I'm mad. And so I talk about um, empathizing then solving because right. so much of our instinct is to jump right to solving. But when somebody does not feel truly empathized with, they will not solve with you. Right. And I have seen it. It's stunning how quickly you can usually solve something. Right. As soon as the other person stops being resistant. <laughs> Well, and I love how you highlight that that's really challenging and coming back to uh, the, the common thread around, hey, this takes practice and it's mindful and it's being and, and leading with empathy in those conversations. And at the end of the day, if that's what we're looking to move, as you say, once someone feels heard, as challenging as it may be for us, that's ultimately how we're going to be able to move this forward. So I love that example and love the uh, what? The processing emotions according to Jim. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, that'll, that'll, be a, that'll be a meme or something. That'll be the next downloadable. Uh, I have another question from Emmanuel. And so I've gotten so many positive comments, uh, Jim, in, 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 the, in the chat function 
Uh, Emmanuel said, this has been an extraordinary learning experience. So thank you, Jim, for this. As leaders, any tips, tools that we can use to coach our team to be more courageous? Yeah, so the answer is yes, in the sense that um, you could use, you could use slash teach um, slash model almost any of the things in the book um, right. to help your team. I'll take this opportunity just in a friendly way to push back on that. And so I'll say, yes, you can do any of those things. And I'll, in a friendly way, I'll say, let me also push back or further uh, in response and say, uh, as a leader, I think on the whole, it's often a mistake to focus energy on encouraging courage. It's become kind of a cute thing to say, uh, we encourage courage or I encourage courage. Uh, and sometimes executives will say to me like, yeah, you know, my problem around here, Jim, we got this problem with our speak up culture because our, I, we, people don't have enough courage. And then I push back and I say, um, you realize, right, that courage is action despite fear. So if you're going to encourage courage as your mantra, you are essentially saying, I realize this is a frightening place and I don't intend to change that. So speak up anyway, you take the risk. And I say, is that actually really the culture you wanna be focusing on um, or, or own? So my suggestion is to think about for leaders is, what can I do that changes other people's perception that courage is necessary, right? What can I do not to encourage my people to be courageous to speak up to me, what can I do so that my people come to fundamentally think I'm not so scary? Mm. That they're not gonna get yelled at or embarrassed or suffer a career consequence. What steps do I have to take to make that clear? Mm. Um, and some of that is, of course, how do you receive input? How do you act on it? How, how well do you solicit it? Um, how well do you show appreciation for it? Um, if people say, yeah, around here, um, who does Emmanuel promote? Does he promote the yes man or woman or does he promote the challenging, you know, the, the, the challenging proactive person? There are lots of behaviors you can engage in that change people's view of, of whether they need courage. Um, mm. And one of the things I think anybody in a supervisory role can own is that you're the, you're the most important model. Um, there are a lot, there's a lot of literature, there's literature on what's called the embody, the organizational leaders as organizational embodiment. That literature just simply says, when people think of like, how do they feel about, are they committed to, do they feel good about, do they trust their organization? The fundamental driver of that perception is, how do I feel about my direct boss? Right, right. And so, mm. uh, you know, the truth is like, Emmanuel, what people will decide about speaking truth to power in the organization is in large part determined by when they're ever in a meeting with you and your own boss, do you speak, do you speak truth? Right. Do you advocate? Do you defend? Um, because in the end, like you're the teacher. So your own courage is the best, your own courage is the best thing you can do to encourage it in others. Right. Well, and I love that you make that point in the book as well about people when they look at the actions of their leaders, that is the most inspirational and motivating for people in terms of, as opposed to others who do it. So I think it's such a, a fabulous, as you say, are you the exemplar of, of, of what you're looking for? Um, have another question from from Tara, which I love because it was connected to. I love the questions there. This is it's so nicely integrated into the book because these are the concepts uh, that you'll learn about. Uh, she was wondering, so how do you know like when you when you engage? like so uh, what what's the right time to be courageous or you know are, are there things you should let go? Like how do you figure out when's the right time to be courageous? Uh, it's such a good question. And again, it's a very, I can give you some general sort of advice about that, but it's a deeply personal because again, just like I can't tell you what's on your courage ladder, I can't ultimately tell you, um, given the nature of courage is that there's always some risk. 
And so nobody can really tell anybody else um, which things are important enough that the importance outweighs the potential risk. Like that's ultimately a very personal thing. Uh, what I can say, which is more sort of general advice about that is, uh, I'll just say three things quickly. One, um, I think our emotions uh, evolved to signal value violations, right? So when you have an emotional reaction to something, it's usually a sign, like something, something's not right. Like you can think of an emotional reaction as resulting from a should is gap, right? We've all internalized like the way we think the world should be. And when it's not that way, that's usually when we have an emotional reaction. Uh, so your emotions are a good guide to when some value is being violated. I think though the important thing to recognize about that is uh, some things are triggers, but not necessarily good guides to action. So, for example, um, if I know about myself, um, gee, because of the way I was raised, any female authority figure who does certain things that remind me of my mom trigger me. Well, that doesn't mean that every time I'm triggered, that's actually an important thing for me to push on, right? <laughs> so I think your emotions are a first step to realizing, like, something's wrong. Uh, but often our emotional triggers, what we get wrong is the level. So uh, what, what I mean by like is, oh, somebody reminds me of so-and-so said something. It feels like an emotional 10, but if I was able to calm down, I'd realize it's like a three. Mm -hmm. uh, so your emotions, I think, are an important starting guide, but they're not the guide. I think some of the more useful guides are, what is most important to me? What Because people who people who try to fight all the battles tend to lose the war. Um, you know, you, you go, you get all indignant on Monday, indignant on Monday about, you know, blah, 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 about an issue you don't even care that much about, you win. But on Friday, when your issue comes up and you really want resources or support, people don't want to hear from you anymore. So <laughs> I think it's knowing like which things are most important to me because they're the most important value violations they're the opportunities for positive impact i'm most passionate about like i write in the book about folks for example in the medical field who who are just driven by a desire to save or positively impact as many lives as possible and that knowledge guided those people to take on all the other risks and they said i never felt the other risks like to me were very large relative to the good I could do. So it's it's really getting clarity on like, what am I trying to do with my one life? Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other thing I would say is timing. Um, sometimes you know exactly what's crucial to you, but the timing's just wrong. Um, right. Sometimes you're too early. Like you might be right that your organization's going stagnant, but right now you're in the number one position and nobody wants to hear you talking about the threat. Uh, you might be right. You know, the truth is five, 10 years ago, almost certainly you were probably right that your organization had some issue with race or gender or whatever. And we weren't quite ready to hear it. Uh, so sometimes it's timing. Uh, the issue in society has not yet sort of gotten to the right level of, of attention uh, and or you haven't figured out yet how to attach the issue to something senior people are paying attention to. Mm. Sometimes the timing's never gonna happen for your issue specifically, but you can attach it to something else which is getting a lot of attention. Right. Uh, so I think I tend to think about like really knowing what's important enough to you to take the risks and thinking about timing and then choosing your sort of battles around that. Mm. Well, and one of the, and I can't believe the hours is basically up. This has just been so good. And so many comments from so many people saying, learn so much through this conversation. And, and thank you to Jim for this. A couple of points for me. I love how you link this back to values. I think that's such an extraordinary. So, um, and, and in that, so how do we choose to decide? when we engage and i just thought for me when i read that part and that so how does this relate to your core values those things that you hold sacred and then that can be such an extraordinarily 
influential tool. And then you also talk about how that impacts just how we feel about either taking the action or not taking action after that critical moment. And that if we're not acting in accordance with the val our values, our core values, how that really can set us up uh, for some challenges if we choose not to take action. And I love you make the point how it serves us even if things don't turn out as well as we would like. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in part you're alluding to this whole issue of regret. Um, yeah. So I, I have studied the regret literature, but also did a few small studies myself. And it turns out that like very, very few, it was close to zero in my own study, very, very few people end up saying, I regret that I acted. Um, and that's consistent with the literature. The literature says by a factor of about three to one, people say they regret inaction. So mm -hmm. it, it seems to be that as time passes, um, it's very hard to let go of, I should have done something. Right. That really lingers. Apparently it doesn't really linger that like, I stood for something and it didn't go that well. People are actually remarkably good at getting over that. Um, and so I think, you know, to me, what that speaks to is, and, and maybe it's a way to sort of ask ourselves ahead of time, like, how will I feel, not just now, but going forward? And I'm, I know that there are a lot of times, if I'm honest, I, I could say I could identify times where um, I could have just kept my mouth shut because it wasn't fundamental to how I was going to see or feel about myself. Um, and then there are other cases where it's pretty fundamental to how I would feel about myself. So I think that's a pretty good, that's a good guide. Absolutely. And I love that it's back to values and the things that are most important to us and how we want to live and how we want to show up personally, as well as for the people that we care about most in our personal and professional lives. So, um, and, and uh, one final point I want to make before we, we close as well, I love that you mentioned how this is a deeply personal journey because for me it, it wonderfully encapsulated why I found your book to be such an invaluable read because we each go through this individually and what I found was is that throughout the book it's either providing examples, exercises, things for me to do and or questions to reflect on on my own journey and since it is so deeply personal then that's invaluable, right? In terms of just being able to, so now I can engage with that content in a way that is deeply reflective of myself and then also have the evidence to help me, you know, as I'm navigating through, here are some more effective strategies to utilize and I still have those choices within. So uh, I, I, I just think that's, again, where we all can benefit and even read it in a different way right in terms of my courage ladder can will likely be different and it's equally valid uh so love it i'm getting lots of thank yous from people saying this has just been awesome uh, a couple of final points before uh, i turn it over to you jim for some closing words uh please go to the website so go to jimdeterrent.com there's so much invaluable information uh talked about the courage ladder uh, assessments, his work, insights on the book. So please, please go pre-order it on Amazon. Uh, it's it's an invaluable uh, uh, read. Before we go, Jim, any final words? This has just been awesome. So much uh, valuable insight here. Any final words before we sign off? Yeah, just just that. You know, thank you for a great conversation. And um, I guess I would leave. You know everybody with two thoughts. One, um, you know, I, when I wrote this book, I realized over time that I hoped people would be inspired by the book, but that in the end, um, it's much more important to be inspired too by the book. Mm. Right? So if you just read the stories of all these other amazing people I, I share in the book, but then you just say like, wow, it's so great that they did those things, then in a sense, the book has failed because mm. uh, you know, inspiration, you know, being inspired from afar by people doesn't actually meet our own obligation to also be part of the solution. We have to be inspired to do the hard work. Um, and I think, you know, in that regard, as you know, Craig, I end the book with my favorite quote from uh, Alfred, uh, sorry, George Bernard Shaw. And he says, you know, reasonable people adapt to the world around them. Unreasonable people attempt to adapt the world to themselves. And that's why 
all progress depends on unreasonable people. And so I think um, I think Bernard Shaw got it exactly right. I think if we want to make the world a different and better place, we have to be willing to be a little bit unreasonable. Uh, and hopefully my book uh, just provides some strategies, you know, for being less likely to get your head chopped off while you're doing that. Well, that's awesome. And 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 from my side, again, I, I couldn't recommend it more highly. I think it's just packed with insights. And you're so open in terms of just some key uh, lessons uh, that that you've learned and, and you share through the examples and through the research that you've conducted. So thank you so, so much for taking the time here. Thank you to everybody who joined us today for all of your great questions. Looking forward to seeing you on a future webinar. Until next time, take care, everyone. Bye for now and uh, head to Amazon and uh, check out the book. So um, talk soon. Thanks again, Jim. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me here today on Do Good to Lead Well. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can follow me on Twitter at Craig Dowden or reach out via LinkedIn or email info at craigdowden.com. I look forward to meeting you here next week for another transformational episode.